you're listening to a Bellingcat Discord server stage talk titled We Are Bellingcat. The talk features Bellingcat founder Elliot Higgins, who spoke to us about the origins of the organization. Elliot also answered questions from the audience and discussed the current state and the future of digital open source investigations. The stage talk was hosted by Giancarlo Fiorella on the Bellingcat Discord server on April 27, 2023. We are very fortunate today to be joined by Elliot Higgins, the founder and current creative director at Bellingcat. From his days as a blogger in 2012 to launching Bellingcat in 2014, Elliot's work and vision have been at the forefront of a revolution in how ordinary people all over the world engage with the news. The methods that Elliot has championed are becoming ubiquitous, not just in journalism, but also in the academic and legal fields, among others. Elliot wrote about his early days as a blogger and then as the founder of Bellingcat in a book called We Are Bellingcat, which was published in 2021. Elliot is here with us today to talk to us about that book. Elliot, thank you very much for joining us. The stage is yours. Um, so I thought that's probably most of you have read the book. I won't go over the contents of it again because you're familiar with that um I, i'll talk a bit maybe about the process of how the book came about and the writing process itself um because it, it really came about after we published the um stuff on the scripple poisonings in 2018 and we had a um loads and loads of interest it ended up on like the front page of every uk newspaper on one day like have i got news for you had a bit about it on it was very exciting and um that resulted in a agent calling me up a book agent uh, natasha um fairweather who um works for a big book agent she said was i interested in writing something i said i had been interested but it was like finding the time to do that and she was super keen to get me involved so she said she set me up with someone to help write it an editor and all all that stuff um and then we basically put together a kind of pitching document to take around to various publishers um, where there was a lot of interest and then there was kind of like a bidding um, on it which uh, went really well uh, Natasha's a great agent so kudos for her for making sure I got a good deal and then we started the writing process which um, basically involved me writing down tons and tons and tons of anecdotes about my life and trying to put them in some sort of order and then we're working with the writers and the editors to actually turn it into something that was coherent um, there's the first version of the book had about 50 pages about my early life. So my school life, my kind of, uh, you know, growing up, my previous work that was submitted to the editors and they just cut all of that stuff out. So there's a version of the book that has, you know, was judged to be very boring and removed. I think they made the right decision there because it does kind of get down to business quite quickly and it probably saves some paper. Um, so I was very pleased with how that um, kind of came out in the end. Structurally, the main thing they changed was putting the um, scribble stuff at the start of the book. So it's kind of like it gives you a preview of where we're going and then it starts with all the kind of building up towards that. Um, but generally, it was a really enjoyable experience. It was quite therapeutic as well, being able to talk about stuff and actually go through it because a lot of the stuff you don't really ever get a chance to talk about. And then um, you kind of you, like in person, one on one. And then when you're writing it all down, you kind of start thinking about stuff and revisiting ideas. But um yeah i mean it's it's again i mean my work started because i was kind of arguing with people on the internet on the guardian middle east live blog um and you know i came from kind of something awful forums as well where i was always posting stuff there it was really because i had a job where so i, I was working in for a few years at a place in uh leicester called um refugee support so my job was basically doing admin work for asylum seekers to pay their bills housing moving them from house to house um and the person who had my job previously was clearly not very good at their job because within about two weeks of me starting the job i had compressed their working week into about six hours of work at the, on the monday and I that meant I actually had quite a lot of spare time at work. I just my days were filled with just browsing internet forums. And um, in 2011, with the Arab Spring, that's something that was kind of being discussed a lot. Um, I remember 
back when there was kind of the uh, Tyria Square kind of battles in Egypt being on like a something awful forums thread where there was like almost kind of live kind of kind of streaming and chatting about what was happening on the ground you know the kind of charges of kind of people riding camels into the crowd and that kind of stuff I think there was like an Al Jazeera camera that was kind of set up live streaming from the square so you could watch this kind of battle over control of the square live and I think that's when I really first encountered um kind of this kind of open source thing and that's where I kind of encountered people like Andy Carvin for example who've been um doing a lot of stuff on there and really that's where I think the very very early kind of open source investigation community um formed and a lot of that came from um places like uh Storyful for example there are a few people there it was kind of people who were already in the business of kind of looking at videos that were online and then kind of coming together on Twitter. Um, and Twitter was actually really, and it still is, I think, a really important part of the open source community because it's really become an ideal platform for the kinds of ways you gather information, you communicate with people, and that it, it, it's really good for the community. So um, with what Elon Musk is doing at the moment and his um, not very good business ventures, it's kind of quite worrying because it starts, that's something that's actually really, really valuable that could be, um, lost um so I, I see there's a few questions already Jean carlo so i'm happy to answer them rather than ramble on about the book everyone's read already well you have uh about 20 minutes left if you if you want uh or we, or we could do whatever you want do you want to go to a couple I of have questions now? Rambling answers anyway so don't even worry <laughs> okay. about it you ask me one question and it'll be 20 minutes before i finish answering okay it, so. uh let me ask so we got a couple i want to save there's a, there's a couple about gaming in particular let's save those for the end uh maybe uh, okay, we've got one from Sarah, our moderator here. Hi, Sarah. Thank you very much for your question. Uh, the question is this. Um, I keep thinking about this as I read the book, Elliot. You mentioned a lot of early contributors to Bellingcad. Um, if you have time, uh, Sarah would be interested in something like a where are they now? For example, what's Timmy doing? What's Veli Pekka doing, et cetera? Where are all those uh, early contributors at now? Yeah, so... Um really we kind of came together like in the week after MH17 was shot down where you had this online community come together really quickly. It was, it's similar to what you saw with the um, kind of build up to the invasion of Ukraine in 2022, where lots of people started discussing stuff, sharing stuff, but this was people just doing through all the stuff on MH17. Um, so Veli Pekka was one of the, uh, Kevin Mackey was one of the first people I saw because he was very much looking at the damage to the airframe because we were trying to reconstruct, you know, we had all these bits of the aircraft and it was like, where did that bit, it was like the jigsaw puzzle of the aircraft, because once we solved that, we could actually see where all the shrapnel damage was. So him and me uh, and a few other people spent a lot of time trying to figure out how to piece this together. One thing there was, was a diagram of the type of aircraft of how it's pieced together. And what we didn't know was a, um, like on the kind of the ribs of the structure there's a number and each of those numbers actually is specific to a certain part of the aircraft so once we realize that we could start piecing all that together and um that helps us establish where the shrapnel was here and that was like a something done in 48 hours or so um Veli Pekka at the time was working for microsoft on their phone division which um obviously isn't something they really do anymore but um he's now i think he's working for like the education part of the Finnish Ministry of Defense or something like that. He's got some kind of educational role in the Finnish Defense Ministry now as well. Um, Timmy Allen, I mean, he's still, I mean, he's, he's got an interesting background. He was kind of doing a lot of work at the time on creating 3D objects for um, Second Life, the, on, you know, the online game for, you think that, I, I'm not not sure how to describe it exactly. It's basically the, the Facebook metaverse, but it was done 15 years ago and it's probably better. But he used to make 3D objects for um, that. And that's where he, he made quite a lot of money from that. I think he made like three or 4,000 euros a month or something, he said, from just selling these items. Um, and he kind of reached out when we were looking at the damage on the side of the missile launcher that's um, photographed in Donetsk. Um, and yeah, he became part of the group. He, he's kind of still doing what he's doing. Kind of, he does a lot of 3D modeling. Um, he gets contracts now, I think, for some quite like major games that I'm not allowed to talk about. But he's, you know, he's keeping busy with his work. Um, 
Yeah, um, sadly, Daniel, um, who's one of the contributors, he passed away uh, recently. So that was very sad. And he played a really big role in um, the early research we did on MH17 and some of the stuff we did on the Scripples as well. Um, yeah, uh, Peter Van House, he's moved on to um, other human rights works. I'm not sure I'm actually allowed to say where he's working now, but yeah, he's he's still working on it. Quite a few people I recruited, like Eric, who's on the chat now. He was probably the first person I contacted um, to ask them if I could turn what they were saying. Eric did a Twitter thread about geolocating one of the um, photographs, and I DM'd him and said, can I turn this into a and I did that and then now he's our director of research and workshops um I'm trying to figure out that yeah there's probably more that I've forgotten but yeah that's just an example of a slice of life thanks for that Elliot I, I love the part in the book where um you talk about how you found Eric or how Eric found you or how you found each other and it's just such a fun kind of behind the scenes look at yeah what he was doing at that time and how I think you mentioned like he basically uh, uh, and Eric is here. Uh, hi, Eric. How he um, discovered like geolocate or like invented geolocation basically like on his own working at a bank, you know, because this is obviously before a time where there were guides on how to do this. So he just kind of like, well, I went on Yandex and I looked at the maps and stuff. And it was such a cool moment of like, wow, yeah, like th this is such cutting edge um, uh, methods and they still are. But at that time, it was like you were discovering them on your own or, or inventing them on your own. Um, we have a, an Eric emoji. Um, Eric, I don't know if you saw. Uh, I, I saw <laughs> put that. up on the server yes. a while ago. Uh, we have a couple Which of... Uh, go ahead. What I loved, one thing that was really great about that really early community is that you had, like, every idea was people discovering it for the first time. Um, so, you know, Eric finding, like, the wiki that had the street name listed on it and that then leading him to this court document or this document about a fight that happened in the shop. That was completely new so every kind of new idea was something that added to the kind of understanding of what open source investigation could be and how we could actually do it um so for myself i mean, I, I literally started just like my early brown moses blog posts are terrible um and a lot of them are just like oh here's some interesting videos from the conflict but then I started seeing these kind of weapons appearing and I got interested in saying, okay, what are these weapons? I didn't speak Arabic, so there's no way I could figure out what was being said. But that kind of then, I was put in contact with a community on Facebook called Mystery Munitions, which was a small group of kind of armed specialists. Some were working for human rights organizations. And I kind of was finding stuff on videos, sharing it there, and they'd have a discussion about it. Some of it was kind of old Soviet weaponry the Syrians were using. Um, others were completely unique. And that community really came into play when we had the um, August 21st sound attacks in 2013, when you had these vol weird volcano rockets that no one had seen before. And that was like piecing together every scrap of information we had to actually recreate what these things looked like before they exploded. Um, and, you know, looking at the way things were welded together, the way, for example, the canister that had the sound in it always broke open in the same way because it had been kind of pre-weakened along certain lines. But that was all a kind of discovery process, and it helped me kind of learn how to ID kind of any we weapons from all kinds of scraps. And that came into play a lot with the um, Khan Sheikhoun 2017 investigation when um, I was able to figure out it was an M4000 chemical bomb that was used, which no one had actually photographed and made public before. And it was because the Russian MOD, in their attempt to deny Syria was responsible, actually published a diagram of one of these bombs. And that diagram had never been published anywhere before. Um, and that allowed me to use that to kind of recreate from the wreckage what the bomb actually looked like, measure it, and actually say this is the bomb in question. And then a few years later, the um, OPCW reports came out and said that bomb had been used in three attacks, and those were three attacks I'd investigated and said the same bomb had been used in those attacks. Um, so yeah, it, it got like every every bit. That's why I really like this kind of community-led aspect because every kind of tiny bit of information adds to your knowledge and adds kind of like an extra opportunity to discover kind of what this thing is and what happened here. Thanks, Elliot. We're getting a lot of questions here in the chat. So thank you, everybody. Please keep sending them in. 
We have one from Thomas. Thomas says, I hate to ask a non-gaming question. That's okay, Thomas. But having seen open source research develop so much over the past decade plus, what new areas are you excited to see explored in the coming years? For me, I really want to start seeing how um, we can, from a kind of Bellingcat perspective, how we can start training other organizations and networking them together to do this kind of work. Because open source investigation can be used on a whole range of different topics. I've used it to find stolen dogs, for example. Um, you can use it from conflict to stolen dogs to you know environmental issues, all kinds of different things. Um, we've been doing a lot of strategy work at Bellingcat recently, deciding on what our future areas of focus. And I think a big part of it, that is this idea of, you know, connecting to organizations, training them, collaborating with them, networking them to other organizations we've worked with before who have different interests and skills, and then kind of building and growing this network in different areas. Um, so that job on a kind of practical growth side of things is really interesting. Um, there's some really interesting tools I've been coming across recently. We've just had a demonstration at one of our staff meetings of a tool called um, Codec that was developed by uh, Situ. Um, and that allows people to collaboratively um, geolocate and chronolocate images, which is something that would be incredibly useful. Um, you basically have a 3D model where you can actually place all this stuff in it. I worked on the January 6 uh, videos and I had to work for about six or 700 videos showing the inaugural entrance area and figuring out where they were in time and space. And that was three or four weeks worth of work. And it was really like intensive. Like I was spending like several hours a day for all that, that time doing that, because if you don't have a platform where you can collaborate, basically it's all kind of in your head. You can have as many spreadsheets as you want, but the kind of visual kind of 3d placement of it kind of ends up being in your brain rather than the actual digital space so having a digital space to be able to do that i think will be very useful and there's just you know constant technology kind of being developed changes i know there's a lot of questions thoughts about ai and how that will impact our work um i think there's positives to it i mean i was you i already used chat gpt um for some of my work you know it's very good for making threads for example i don't do it for research I found it actually quite useful as well for bouncing ideas around. You kind of present a concept to ChatGPT, and then it kind of comes back with a result, and you start making it focus on certain things. And it can be a kind of interesting sounding board for stuff that you're too embarrassed to say publicly. So that's proven to be quite useful as well. Um, but yeah, I really think a lot of it for us is about making sure the community continues to expand exploring kind of more social networks that's why we're spending more time on discord because you know twitter is not always gonna be around so we really want to be able to um expand the different places where we have a presence look at different ways for people to ha you know different collaboration spaces really so at Bellingcat, we have you know the discord server we have our, our global authentication project team that works on um kind of a, a smaller team but they're kind of more focused on specific tasks and looking at how those kind of different levels interact with each other and how they can contribute to investigations and tasks. So that's something that I'm particularly interested in continue to develop and grow. Thanks, Elliot. We have so many really good questions, so I'm just gonna throw them all at you, okay? Um, we've got uh, one from, uh, oh God, they're so good. Which one do I pick? I'm trying to go in order, but um, let's do this one because you just mentioned Twitter here, um, Elliot. Uh, if Twitter had not existed, or if Twitter didn't exist, uh, would Bellingcat have existed slash happened? This is from Sarah and Jimmy. I think it's reasonable to say no, it wouldn't have, because Twitter played a really huge role in, first of all, giving me a place where I could actually share my ideas, allowing me to connect to people I would never meet normally, like um, CJ Chivers from the New York Times, for example. He was a huge supporter of Bellingcat, and he, oh, well, Brown Roses actually early on. And I got to know him because I sent him some videos. Um, you might know a guy called Kevin Dawes. If you don't, Google him and GQ and you'll be on for the ride of your life but he'd been showing videos from the ground in libya um showing man pads just kind of out in the open anyone could pick up and he ch shivers had done a lot of work on this so i shared them and he started following yeah lol definitely uh <laughs> he uh started uh looking at that stuff and we kind of got to know each other and he helped promote my work that could have never have happened without twitter i wouldn't have built up a network of followers if it hadn't been for twitter 
I wouldn't have discovered information on all kinds of different events as they unfolded had it not been for Twitter. So um, I really think Twitter was actually really crucial to the development of the open source community. So, um, you know, the, the kind of risks mismanagement of Twitter presents is actually really, really um, concerning. Um, and I, th I think if Twitter disappears overnight, it would be actually really, really damaging for the um, open source community as a whole. And a follow-up question there. Uh, this is from Huareche uh, I'm I'm sorry. I know you've been in the server since day one. I've never known how to say your name, but thank you for your question and thank you for always being here. Uh, follow-up to that. If Twitter goes down, uh, you've said in the past, apparently, allegedly, Elliot, that you will not switch to any alternative. Do you still believe that if Twitter just completely becomes even more of a dumpster fire, would you just like not go on any other social platform? Well, it's not because I, I, I'm being snobbish or like I love Twitter. It's because I kind of want my life back. I spend way too much time on Twitter. I have children and a wife, so um, I, I have to kind of have a more healthy relationship with my online life. I mean, between the work of Ballincap, which is very, can be very consuming, um, and uh, you know the way social media works, you may have noticed if you follow me on social media, I tend to argue less with people on the internet because I kind of decided that's not really a healthy behavior most of the time. Sometimes if I'm on a train, I'm on board, I'll do it or on a long flight. Um, but I, I try and have, I try and set a specific time where I'm putting my phone down. I'm doing other things. I've started, you know, reading books and playing the piano and stuff that doesn't kind of, uh, is, is less toxic to my, uh, mental health. The eternal struggle, right? Putting the phone down and, yeah. <laughs> and doing whatever. Yeah. Um, we have a question here from, um, uh, let's do the one from David Galbreath. I think that's how you pronounce it. Hi, David. How do you choose what to investigate? Um, I've early on, I think it was very much led by what was, you know, what was the most stuff out there. So, you know, early on it was the Arab spring. So Syria was a big focus when I started blogging because kind of Libya had kind of died down in that kind of initial phase of what was happening there. And really the focus was on Syria and there was a huge amount of content coming from Syria. No one was looking at. So that just gave me plenty to look into. Um, then of course, with the launch of Bellingcat a few days later, MH17 was shot down. That was a huge story with a big open source element to it. So then that became the focus. Um, but and then that kind of you had Russia starting to bomb Syria, so then the kind of Syria stuff and the Ukraine Russia stuff kind of merged into one kind of community, and there's a lot of crossover there. Um, and then Russia we discovered poisoned a bunch of people, so that kind of became a thing to go after. But we're becoming a lot more um, uh, kind of planned around our approach. It was very reactive in the past, but that's partly because we were, you know, relying on a very big community of volunteers rather than the position we're in now where you know we have like 30 staff members we can plan and actually decide what we're doing over a multi-year period we have a focus on um not only just doing the investigations but developing tr um, investigation communities around that um so yeah it's really um kind of now more about okay where is the best impact in terms of building communities kind of growing um, the understanding and the application of open source investigation um, and having the most impact. Um, and that's kind of a lot of where our decision making is being made. Thanks, Elliot. We have one here from Ghostboy. Ghostboy asks, have you ever come across information in your investigations where you were unsure whether or not it should be made public? And if so, what was that consideration process like? Um, it's, it's Quite frequent. I mean, sometimes um, you have kind of ethical issues around what, um, you know, sharing something online, um, stuff that anything to do with gender-based violence, for example, is something you have to be very, very careful about. Um, you have to think about, is there a risk to the witnesses? Um, there was, I remember one sequence of videos I discovered from Syria where it became very apparent the person was filming from the same location every single day for a very long period of time. And I realized geolocating that would basically give the position of the, this person away. And, you know, certainly Syrian artillery would be accurate enough to hit his, you know, front door. So I didn't want to, you kind of make those ethical considerations about the safety of the um, people witnessing it. Also, this question is about, okay, is this person, you know, 
for example, with the 53rd Air Defence Brigade investigation we did, we identified a lot of people are part of the 53rd Air Defence Brigade, but we couldn't say for certain they were involved with the shooting down of MH17. So we made the choice then not to publish their names and identities. We censored them in the final piece um, because they um, weren't directly linked to the crime in a way that we could say these are really kind of actual people who are involved with the shooting down of MH17. Um, and we now we have like an ethics board at Bellingcat as well now. So we have discussions. If something comes up and we're not sure, we have a discussion and we try and figure it out and we track those decisions. Uh, I believe Giancarlo is tracking those decisions. So we actually have a way to look back and say, oh, why did we make this decision in the first place? What could have changed in the time that, you know, because that's something that happens, you know, technology changes, our way to search for things changes, um, you know, for a while, reverse facial search in Yandex was something that was very, very easy to do. It's less so now, but you constantly have to kind of review your decisions and think about that process. Yeah, I'm writing an article right now that's um, sort of a guide, not a guide, it's a description of our ethics board, which you just mentioned, Elliot. Um, so anytime we have one of these discussions about an ethical dilemma that we may run across, there's a whole internal process for how we make that decision, how we write it down. So it should be coming up on our website, hopefully uh, sooner rather than later. Thanks for that answer, Elliot, and thanks for that question. Ghost Boy, we have one here from Vander Marish. Hi, Vander Marish. Thank you for your question. Vander Marish says... You write about setting up college and all sorts of boot camps in your book. Uh, where is Bellingcat now in that regard? For example, do you work with disadvantaged communities? Are there any plans or projects to work with communities affected by the climate crisis, for example, and making use of their right to information against fossil fuel companies or other projects, let's say, on this educational front that we need to learn more about? Well, uh, Giancarlo, you're you're involved with probably our biggest project there, which is the project we're doing with the Student View in the UK. So there we're designing a school curriculum to teach students um, about uh, open source investigation, critical thinking, kind of all this stuff that we do um, in a way that um, works for young people and also works for their teachers so they can actually teach this stuff. And I, I, I hope that there is to create pop-up newsrooms that the students can become involved in. I think in the long term, we would want to kind of build a network of pop-up newsrooms in schools and universities that can look at local issues. I was very inspired by them, um, a video they did and put on YouTube from a group in Bradford who looked at, um, they, they, they were I think 15 to 16 year olds who were looking into, they wanted to know why there were so many high-speed police chases in their local area. And they didn't know they could do freedom of information requests. So for them, especially from a quite a deprived area where they have a bad relationship with the police, it was quite empowering because they could make the police tell them stuff, which they didn't realize they could do. And they found out that in that area, there were an unusually high number of high-speed police chases and actually brought attention to that issue. And that kind of empowerment on that kind of very hyper-local level is something I find really, really interesting. And I think if you show young people that there's a, a way to do that, then I think it can kind of um, counter some of the kind of more negative impacts of online communities um, and this kind of disassociation from politics that occurs because you feel you're powerless and unless you go in a certain career path, it's kind of like no, um, kind of there's no way for you actually to change what's happening around you because that's the kind of thing that pushes you into communities where there are kind of more extreme viewpoints and, um, you know, that's something we see all the time. We're also looking at new ways to kind of, partner with universities, um, we're always open to those ideas. I'm hoping as we have kind of a more strategic growth plan, um, we can kind of look at the areas that we're working on that, you know, we're looking at, for example, doing more work on the far right, um, the connections between the far right and the religious right, um, the way in which the US influences that across the world. Those areas are really interesting for me. So I, that's the kind of thing where you could see this kind of multi-level approach where you're working with kind of local um ngos journalists kind of even universities and collaborating to actually work on this kind of stuff so i, I think kind of engaging with educational establishments is really something that's um like really i think key to what we're trying to do because then you're also establishing the fact that these people are actually building the skills they need to go in and do this kind of work on their own terms um, for example, I get asked a lot about how come we don't do work on China. That's because there's not many Chinese speakers who do open source investigations. So you need to build that kind of educational element into it. 
And a lot of the reasons we focused on the topics we have, going back to the earlier question, is because people have self-taught on the things that interest them and that there's a community to support those interests, which isn't always there. So that's something we have to actually build ourselves and actually build from the ground up rather than hoping it emerges organically from you know the most interesting new stuff that's going on. Thanks for that, Elliot. And thanks, uh, Vandermarge, for your question there. We have one here from Nietcat. Nietcat asks, um, what do you think are the main challenges for open source investigations or open source investigators today? How have they changed since, let's say, the early days of open source research? I think there's... Um... <sighs> Well, I mean, if you look at the very early community, it was very small and often it came from people who were professionally always already kind of involved in it. So if you look at some of the early people, there were a couple of people from Amnesty International and Human Rights Watch who are already working on analysis. Storyful had people who are already trying to verify videos. Then you had a couple of amateurs like me, you know, somebody had too much time on their hands who kind of got involved with that as well. Now, I think you have these kind of larger communities and part of it is actually teaching people as you get more and more people involved with this, some of the ethical considerations they have to understand, the risks as well. Um, helping other people understand how they can actually get involved and build stuff themselves. Because Bandicat is a small organization. Um, we can't do every single thing. I just saw someone mention Sudan there. Like, we're not set up to be able to do something in Sudan. I'd really love to be able to do that. But how do we create opportunities for the people who are interested in that to? do open source investigation and actually create communities around that themselves without our direct intervention. So that's where we publish so many case studies and guides. We hope to lead by example and to kind of give those opportunities to pe people who are just interested and say, hey, I want to do this myself. So it's, it's really about educating people on how they can um, educate themselves really about open source investigation and, you know, explaining how we've done that ourselves over the years. Thanks for that question. And thanks, uh, Elliot, for that. Uh, I'm going to read a question here from Bailey 2009 I'm just reading out these words, Elliot. I don't know if, I don't know if this is completely out of your wheelhouse and you don't have a, an answer to this, but I'm just going to ask the question and, and uh, let's see where it goes. So uh, the question is, uh, regarding the far right in Ukraine, there's been some Bellingcat reports that uh, linked to pro-Putin propagandists. These were all pre-2022. Uh, but the questions are, what is your assessment of the far right in Ukraine today? Uh, again, I don't know if you if you want to talk about this or not. Uh, and do you perceive any issues with leaving old investigations up without modifying them, which can be referenced for nefarious reasons? Or maybe we can reword that and say, you know, what happens when uh, Bellingcat publishes something that later on we have to fix or we realize that maybe necessitates some kind of uh, editing in, in, in after publication? Well, I mean, if it's accurate at the time, I mean, going back and changing stuff because of the changing kind of political positions of people is just bad journalism. To, you know, we can't really do that. I think there's been a shift, though, in like, for example, if you look at the Azov movement, um, there has been a shift there. And this, that's really not that not to say that they've all become kind of lovely leftists or anything like that. It's more that the kind of far-right nationalist part of their organization is less of a priority than building up a fighting force. So that's become a kind of more mixed and complex thing. But of course, people refer back to all kinds of early reporting about them because there isn't much reporting. And I think, unfortunately, um, you have a circumstance where it's very difficult to talk about this because if you publish anything, I'm not saying it's Bellingcat, but it's anyone people will just get really really mad at you and it's difficult to have those kind of discussions in public um which is unfortunate really because it then kind of creates this kind of stifling effect that i don't really kind of like to see um it's also quite difficult to report on this when you are in the middle of a war because stuff changes you know stuff is changing kind of very very rapidly um you know a major figure could be killed in a, an attack and then suddenly how does that change the dynamic understanding that the changing leadership is very difficult when you know you're involved in a conflict where obviously not every single piece of information is you know out there about what's happening so it, it's i think what we're going to see is kind of 
you have this kind of complicated period at the moment, but then afterwards we'll have an assessment of that and then we'll actually say, okay, where are we now? But I think we should always be aware when it comes to the kind of, you know, really far right that, you know, just because they're acting nice now doesn't mean they're going to be acting now we're after the war when they've got this kind of attempt to get political power. There, there may be another shift there, but um, I think there is a lot of very bad faith arguments about the far right in Ukraine that are happening all over the place. Um, so it's very, very difficult to actually have a reasonable discussion about this at the moment in an online space because people will just pick a side they've already decided they're on. So it's like, it's like impossible to have a serious discussion about it. Thanks, Elliot. <clears throat> oh, boy. Thanks, Elliot. The <laughs> uh, Bailey 2009. Um, last week or two weeks ago, we had Michael Coborn, who does, uh, he's a lead uh, sort of far-right researcher at Bellingcat. Uh, he gave a stage talk two weeks ago. I'm going to put it up on SoundCloud. I'm aiming for doing it tomorrow. So definitely check out our SoundCloud for that episode because he talks at length at the far right in Ukraine. So I think you would find it interesting. Thanks again for your question. And thank you, Elliot, for your um, answer there. We got one from Slang. Slang is a technical education fellow um, at Bellingcat uh, and then is also in the Global Authentication Project, which is our formal volunteer platform. This relates to a question that you uh, answered earlier, Elliot, but it has a sort of a slant towards younger people. Um, the question is this. I'd like to ask Elliot about uh, Bellingcat's mission in the book. Uh, on seeding these powers in the younger generation. So we're talking exclusively about young people here. Uh, again, you've mentioned university projects in the Netherlands and making them international. How, are, how is that going? How is in Bellingcat's, let's say, international engagement uh, with schools going? Anything else that you can add to your previous answer uh, that was more or less on this uh, topic as well? Yeah, it, it's one thing we've really think, realized as an organization, if, if you have to have constant engagement in many of these areas, we've kind of done stuff here and there, kind of going to universities, uh, kind of older kind of school students sometimes talking to them, but you really need, if you actually really want to have an impactful change, you need that sustained engagement in a way that's more than just going to a place and telling people about your work. You want to get them involved with the work. Um, early on, I was kind of involved with the uh, King's College um, War Studies Department, and that's actually where uh, Christian Treiber and Nick Waters, who were part, of, were part of our team in Christians now at the New York Times, came from. And that's kind of, you know, the relationships you want to continue and keep building. I think the best way to do that is have that as part of larger projects that are engaged on certain topics and that creates it into because you need something that's sustaining it's very difficult to create a sustainable project if you're just going from place to place but that does mean you have to make a choice of what opportunities you pursue i know there's a lot of interest for example in india about open source investigation but that requires us to create a kind of resource and time commitment that we just aren't able to do because we are trying to do the same thing in other areas. I mean, we have a lot of discussions as well at Bellingcat about how quickly we should grow because we're worried that if we grow too quickly, we'll kind of lose what makes Bellingcat so special for the people who work here. That um, I think Bellingcat's quite unusual because it's not like I'm the king of Bellingcat telling everyone what to do. We have a very kind of flat structure. Um, everyone has a voice. We kind of encourage people. My, my job at Bellingcat is to kind of facilitate people to do the best they can do with the things they love. Uh, not to tell them what to do and expect them to write, you know, two articles a day or something like that. I never set up Bellingham Hats to become like a traditional news organization where we have to churn out articles to keep, you know, our website alive. And that's why we don't have advertising and rely on kind of donations and stuff like that. Um, but that does mean that we can't, if we actually want to sustain growth outside of Bellingcat, we can't just go from here to here to here to here. We need to say, okay, we're going to focus on, you know, Latin America and this topic in Latin America or Europe and this topic in Europe. And we're going to build something there to a point where it's self-sustaining and that's a multi-year effort. Um, and you know, if that requires expanding and growing and fundraising, then we need to do it in a planned way. So it doesn't kind of destroy the magic of Bellingcat really. Thanks for that, uh, Elliot. And uh, thanks for that question, Slang. Um, got a question here from Swan807. Hello, Swan807. Thanks for your question. The question is, do you store interesting nuggets you come across during your investigations that have to do with other countries or actors? So if so, do you go back and review these nuggets every once in a while? 
an example in the question here from Swan 807 is, I don't know if this, how accurate this is, but they say, uh, Christo Grosev revealed a lead on a potential coup in Bulgaria that was accidentally prevented by the police. And I was wondering for how long this had been known and how you proceed with such interesting nugget findings. Um, it depends. I mean, sometimes you'll find a nugget, but you don't find enough to turn it into a full-fledged investigation. It's like, oh, that's interesting, but I don't have enough there yet to actually turn it into something that I actually understand what's going on. Sometimes it's just, you know, you don't have enough information. Sometimes it's just, it's interesting, but it's not, is there really an article in that? Um, I can't think of too many specific, I mean, for me, I kind of got really obsessed with chemical weapon use in Syria. Like I've read every OPCW report, like word, you know, every single word, every single page of them. I've looked at, I, I can't imagine there's a piece of information about chemical weapon use in Syria that's in the public domain that I haven't seen, read, viewed, or whatever. And there's throughout there, there were always these kind of weird little things that sometimes I came back to. So I mentioned the volcano rockets that were used in the August 21st, 2013 um, sound attacks. One reason I kind of created so much kind of unique reporting and understanding about that is because I've been following the use of chemical weapons at that point for a year in Syria, locally made rockets before in other videos, but no one else had been looking at those videos. So I was the only person who was able to then then able to connect those dots together. So that's really, it, it, it's kind of like you always find stuff and it's kind of in the back of your mind. I sometimes go back through old videos and photographs that I had collected to kind of, um, you know, just, just kind of like looking through old case files and I'll notice something, I'll go, hang on, I didn't make that connection before. So it's always worth kind of reviewing your, your old work, especially if you're focused on one topic in particular. Thanks, Elliot, for that answer. And um, thanks, Swan807. For your question, I got another one here from, uh, and folks, we got about, uh, let's say, 20 minutes left on this, so uh, I'm going to try to get through all your questions. We have one here from, uh, let's say, Higgs. Higgs is asking, have you seen certain open source investigation techniques become obsolete, perhaps even because people are aware that info can be tracked using certain strategies? Well, I think... The thing with the people becoming aware of stuff, one small group or subset of people might become aware of it once they've become kind of exposed to it, but then there's the rest of the world who aren't aware of it. So fortunately, we're at a stage where there's still lots of people out there who haven't heard of open source investigation and still make the same mistakes that the people we've already caught have made. So um, that, that makes life, life easier. Usually it's because tools change. So we've had um, Google reverse image search used to be really, really good. And they've kind of nerfed that quite a bit. And it's now Yandex is pretty good, but it has a kind of Russian internet kind of bias to it, um, which can be useful if you're looking into Russian stuff. But um, that's usually where the prob you have the problems where there was one tool, I can't remember the name of it, but it was um, fantastic for looking up geotagged Instagram posts. And in 2014, we found loads of Russians posting Instagram posts um, and VK, I think, as well, from their camps on the borders with Ukraine. Um, but that just ended up getting nerfed and you couldn't use it anymore. Um, yeah, EchoSec, which Eric says as well, it used to be really, really good. And then because of the various nerfs from the various platforms, it just became, yeah, it's all right, but it's not the kind of amazing tool it used to be. So yeah, it's really down to the kind of tools breaking or being becoming obsolete. Uvi had a question sort of related to this, and I guess we can just tack this on to that long list of tools that uh, no longer work, but Twitter API, of course, now it's uh, a paid um, service, I suppose we can call it. So. Uh, same sort of idea, right, Elliot? One one day a tool works, you have a way, a method, a, a, a way of getting data, then you wake up the next day and you find out that it's not working anymore. That's just sort of what happens sometimes, unfortunately, right? Um, yeah, and it's like you've had recently as well, a lot of the my maps um, on uh, Google being shut down in the last 48 hours. Some have been restored, but these are people's mapping projects of the conflict. And often these changes come without any warning. Um, I remember a few years ago, my um, YouTube channel was shut down because I'd been uploading some videos from Syria and um, YouTube had started using this new algorithm to detect videos that were possibly violating, you know, terms of services. And I got caught in that 
fortunately I knew people at Google and I got it restored and I was able to help some other major ones get restored but literally hundreds of thousands of videos were removed from YouTube because of an algorithm that selected videos that some reviewer couldn't tell if it was a difference between a jihadi video or a free Syrian army video. We have a, a question here from MathGuy26. Hi, MathGuy26. Good to see you. Thanks for coming. Uh, I'm going to rephrase it slightly, MathGuy26, so I ap apologize. I think I'm still going to get to the, the, the gist of your question, which is, which is this, uh, Elliot. How have open source methods changed the way that big news organizations report on the news? I really think the invasion in 2022 was really where this really came of age. It's hard to imagine the conflict in Ukraine being understood by any serious news organization or NGO without open source investigation being a major part of that. And I think that's really where there's been a major shift. I mean, if you look at the conflict in Syria and, you know, the previous years in Ukraine, open source investigation was just like kind of this weird kind of trick that one or two organizations did. but with the current invasion i think that's and you know we've trained thousands and thousands of people and a lot of them journalists working at these organizations to do open source investigation that's really made an impact on how we understand this conflict um the new york, new york times team um they they do brilliant work using a combination of open source evidence and other visual um evidence um, you'll see more and more work done by the likes of CNN, for example. Um, so we're kind of looking over actually at the moment of doing more work in the US, but we recognize that major media organizations are doing good open source work. So we're more thinking about how do we uh, approach the kind of local issues, working with local organizations and the problems that affect them, because those are the kind of issues that still have a big impact on people, but they get overlooked by the media who are going after kind of the next big war conflict. Great. We are approaching the uh, uh, fun, not fun, the funny, I guess, the meme question part of the <laughs> of the stage talk, I guess. They've all been fun questions. They've all been really good questions. So thank you, everybody, for asking them. Uh, we got one here from Eridus, longtime Discord community member. Hi, Eridus. Um, question here, Elliot, is which MMOs were you playing when you began Bellingcat? And what are your favorite uh, games to play currently besides Dwarf Fortress? So um, I actually wasn't playing any MMO. Actually, the reason I started all this stuff was because I stopped playing them because I realized my marriage probably wouldn't survive it. So I was a hu I was hugely into Ultima Online for uh, several years, from about 97 onwards. Then I played a lot of World of Warcraft, um, and I was kind of doing raids and stuff. Um, and, like, really far too much. I was a mage in World of Warcraft. Um, and so when I got engaged, I realized that considering I was like coming home from work and then just playing World of Warcraft the entire evening before I, until I went to bed, it probably wasn't a good idea if I did that whilst I was married. So I thought I'll give that up. But that gap was then filled with um, my my uh, open source investigation stuff. So I found another thing to become addicted to. I've, I've realized over like in the last year or so that. I've, I've probably had ADHD my whole life, but the hyper-focus stuff where you just focus on one thing entirely and it becomes your entire life, which probably isn't surprising to most people here, but um, that was kind of, I think, part of the reason I got so much into these online games and then um, my open source investigation stuff. So hooray for ADHD. Um, but what I've also, and I'm now, I mean, I'm currently playing, um, I've got really into those um card ones like across the obelisk and um rogue book uh backpack hero anything that involves kind of a roguelike system with random generation and cards i'm really into um but yeah i mean someone once described said that i found the best kind of game in the world to play with doing this work i do and kind of in a way you know i'm on my computer all the time except uh yeah it's, it's a more complicated game i'm playing now uh, thanks for that uh, question there and, and, and that answer, Elliot. Um, we have another one here from Chris Oziek, also a longtime uh, community member. Hi, Chris. So, Elliot, a little bit of uh, background to this. We have a Belling Cook channel, uh, which is where people share recipes and pictures of food. Uh, Chris uh, is uh, very active in that channel. So his question is this. When uh, will you share a fantastic meal in Belling Cook? Um, or, you know, if you were to share uh, a meal, uh, what would you share in the Bell and Cook channel? 
Um, I have a uh, slow cook lamb recipe that I do every Sunday or so um, that's cooked in a very kind of tomatoey kind of Italian sauce that's really delicious. I'll share that because it makes it super tender. I actually really enjoy cooking and I, I tend to do all the cooking at home. Um, and it's kind of my, it's, my, my mission at the moment is to have more hobbies that take place of me browsing the internet all evening. So cooking's one of them learning how to play the piano after not playing it for 20 years since i was at school is another one um spending time with my children i guess is one of them as well um yeah that's that's kind of the areas that i'm really focusing on at the moment but yeah i i may start sharing a few recipes i've made recently because I've, I've found some really good ones recently nice thank you for that uh we have about 10 minutes left i got a couple of questions here to go through one of them is from uh, miles miles asks where do you see the differences and similarities between what bellingcat uh and journalists do and intelligence services well i think um with intelligence services i mean it kind of i think comes down to the term offset which is something that um we struggle with at Bellingcat because open source intelligence suggests there's an intelligence product being created at the end of that process, a very specific kind of product. Um, and really, you have to understand when we all kept, got together in like 2011 and there was like a dozen of us on the internet, you know, coming up with things like geolocation and stuff, we were just nicking words from other places. So we didn't know what we to call what we were doing and we saw the world open source investigation. So that kind of became the adopted term, even though it wasn't really accurate. Geolocation is just a word someone came up with and they got from kind of another place and we kind of used it for this thing. So basically all these words we use in open source investigation are just kind of made up words it's like a dozen people stole from some other place so that's kind of you know that is one difference and you know journalism the outcome of journalism is um you know very different from an intelligence product the idea is to get that information out there to as many people as possible but i would say as well that whilst banning cat i probably thought of as a journalism organization we do a lot of work in other areas like um, nick waters who leads our justice and accountability team has developed a very specific program um, process for um, legal accountability using open source evidence which is far more intensive than the more of editorial focused process that we do at the moment so um yeah kind of journalism is part of what we do at bellingcat but it's not the only thing that we're doing there's the education there's the um you know the justice and accountability work we're doing alongside that journalism work um since we're talking about intelligence uh services we've got a question from kulavelli who's also a, a longtime member of uh the community so hi kulavelli really good to see you as always and the question is what do you think about ex bellingcat uh staff uh, or people affiliated with Bellingcat moving on and then later going to work for uh, an intelligence service? Well, I've kind of always assumed that the intelligence services are just nicking all our ideas and doing it themselves in some way or another anyway. Um, even very early on, I, I did an event with um, uh, an organization called CIPRI talking about the work we were doing. And one of the people I met there said um, he's a few friends who kind of work in the intelligence services. And the Brown Moses blog was basically their dirty secret because they used to nickel my work and redo it for their own stuff. And if you look at all these leaked Discord, um, these things that were leaked onto Discord, you start getting a feeling that a lot of this stuff is really coming from open source. It's like if you uh, look at the orgs blog um, stats and then you look at the you know, there's top secret stats of how many vehicles have been destroyed. They are very, very similar. So they're clearly using open sources, you know, published online to, you know, do that work. So, um, you know, I would hope they would find a career that was a little bit more open, but I, I'm not going to tell people kind of what to do with their lives after they leave Berlin Cat. Yeah, it's not like we have to sign an NDA or something before we, you know, when we get our contract saying we're not going to work. Uh, at those places afterwards. Uh, but on the other hand, not many people have left Bellingcat, right? It's uh, it's the kind of place where it attracts, I think, a small a, number, yeah. yeah, it's a small number of people who've had, you know, who've moved on. Um, we're still young enough, I guess, that a lot of the original uh, crew is, is still around. Um, so thanks for that question, Kulavelli. Um, we've got one here from, Pach uh, I'm going to say Pachala, uh, P-C-H-L-A. Thank you for your question. The question is this, where do you see Bellingcat in five years? Well, I really hope in five years that we've established um, ourselves in kind of new regions and working more focused on new topics. 
Um, so like I said, we're going through this big strategic review at the moment. I think at the moment we're looking in particular at developing our work in Latin America. Jane Carlo and some of our other staff members have done some really, really great work in that area already. Um, we've also been doing more work on the far right. And as I explained before, I'm really interested in that kind of far right religious right connections that I, I'd really like to start doing more work in. I want to look at this kind of local news kind of network development in um, the US and uh, North America. We have, of course, the educational projects. I'm hoping in five years time will be it'll be kind of adopted by schools in the UK and hopefully spreading to different parts of the world. Um, yeah, and I, I, I think we'll just be building kind of bigger teams focused on different regions and then looking at new regions and kind of continue to expand in that way. Thanks for that. And I guess maybe as we begin to wrap up, um, you know, Bellingcat has come such a long way, obviously, from the early days to where it is now. Um, Bellingcat, uh, this question is from Stephanie. Stephanie says, Bellingcat is quoted everywhere today. Does fame change anything about your goals? Uh, no, I mean, it really opens up more opportunities. It's kind of allows us to meet people we wouldn't meet otherwise. Um, you know, for example, the success of the Navani do documentary, I mean, it won the Oscar recently. Um, Christo was a really big part of that. Banning Cat is mentioned a lot on that. That has done a lot to raise Banning Cat's profile in the US. Um, we've got quite a lot of interesting photos of Christo meeting celebrities after the Oscars as well. So, you know, it opens up, it, it makes you meet more people, but it also means that there's, you know, the people who have the money kind of behind that, they're interested in kind of donating and building stuff. Um, so, you know, it's great for fundraising opportunities. It's great for you to kind of meet new people. You would have an opportunity to speak to, um, we, we kind of have things as being famous in the public, but also in certain, um, areas we're also very well known i mean journalism is an obvious one but for example the kind of legal accountability community and the ndo community battling cat's really really well known there i mean we know lots of people there we work and collaborate with them and it just gives us a, a more opportunities to build those collaborative projects that we're really interested in pursuing um so yeah it, it, it's kind of in a way just a resource for, for us to allow to do even more with what we have at battling cat Great. Thank you so, so much for that. We've got two questions left. Um, and so the penultimate question is from Timothy. Hi, Timothy. This is going to be a tough one, Elliot. The question is this, what are you most proud of at Bellingcat? Um, well, I mean, on the, on the terms of the reporting and the investigation we've done, I mean, something like MH17, you know, that was hugely significant, not just because of what we found, but both the way it actually helped develop a open source investigation, raise awareness of it among different communities, the way in which um, it kind of the legal community actually started recognizing the value of open source investigations. So that really had a huge impact. And I think most people who kind of see our day-to-day -day work wouldn't really appreciate how much that actually had an impact on the background. But the fact I've been able to build an organization where I like to think that the staff members feel that they're part of the organization. They aren't just working for an organization. They contribute to it. Um, I was, for example, last, um, I think it was this summer, we all went to Portugal and spent, it was Portugal, was it? I travel so much, I forget, Jane, can't I? Uh, yeah, it was, we had yeah. A, yeah, we had a staff retreat where we um, spent a week designing our, kind of doing the initial design phase of our strategy. And every single staff member is involved in that. And it wasn't like... It was me telling everyone what to do. Everyone had an equal voice. We worked collaboratively on that. And that means that everyone in the organization has ownership of the strategy we've developed. They understand why we're doing it and they want to do it, which for me is really important. I've worked with some really shitty bosses in the past and I've had jobs I've hated. And I've never wanted to create an atmosphere or an organization where people don't want to work there and they're just doing it. I want a place where people really enjoy working there. And, I want to enable people to do the best they can with, you know, what they want to do. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm really kind of proud of being able to develop an organization that lets people do that. Yeah. You've succeeded at that, Ellie. That's uh, um, yeah. The staff retreat is always great because it's the opposite of, it's not, it's not you telling us what to do. It's like everyone actually telling you like, we should do this. We should do that. It's uh, it's really wonderful. Uh, final question here as we wrap up the hour here with uh, Elliot Higgins, founder and creative director at Bellingcat is, 
I'm going to adapt it slightly. This is from Chris uh, Oziek again. How do you see the future of the Bellingcat Discord server and let's say more broadly, mm -hmm. the Bellingcat community? A lot of members here are actually becoming researchers. They're finding job as researchers uh, and collaborating on projects. So how do you see the future of this community that's uh, uh, surrounding Bellingcat? Yeah, I mean, what I kind of really, really would like to see more of, and it's something we actually discussed a lot internally, is looking at the kind of activity we have here and saying, how do we start taking all the stuff you're digging up and the bits of investigation you're all doing and put that into a pipeline where it becomes something we can publish or it becomes some sort of products at the end of that, that, you know, people, you, you feel like you're actually doing something here that will turn into something that other people will see and engage with. How do we make that kind of re rewarding for you? Um, and, you know, how do we then also, you know, as um, Chris was saying, you know, people are going off and kind of joining other organizations. How do we, is there an opportunity there to create collaboration from that between those organizations? So, yeah, it, it's kind of, um, yeah, it's really for me, I mean, so much about Bellingcat is about collaboration and then enabling that collaboration. So I'd really like to discord on different levels to uh, kind of be part of that. Excellent. Thank you so much. Elliot, thank you uh, very much for spending this past hour with us here. And thank you all for joining us uh, during this stage talk. Uh, thanks again. Great. Thanks, everyone. Bye-bye. Perfect. Thank you. So I've stopped recording, uh, and Elliot is gone. Great. Thanks, everybody, for coming. Uh, have a good one. This will be up on SoundCloud, uh, let's say, next week. So have a good one. Thank you for listening to the Stage Talk. If you'd like to catch a Stage Talk live and ask the guest questions, join the Bellingcat Discord server by visiting www.discord.gg forward slash Bellingcat. The music you've heard is titled 1983 by Ben Elson and is courtesy of Epidemic Sound.